The Battle of Milk River was a hundred years ago. It's been after sides have agreed to reenact it. Looks like the real thing, Ben. The cavalry is supposed to shoot blanks. No one is supposed to get hurt. Lewis! It killed Lewis! And the Indians aren't supposed to fight back. Captain Morrissey's dead. We're going after the Redskins who did it. Down there! All we got is a mob chasing an unarmed bunch of kids. One of those boys is mine. You guys know anything about making a war party? Billy Worth. I said them. Kevin Dillon. Brothers. And Tim Sampson. Yeah. They weren't looking for a battle. Man leaves tracks, same as any animal. But they found one. The Indians had no firearm. They weren't searching for a cause. We don't need federal intervention. They became one. Good luck. Well, thanks. To bring in the National Guard could worsen this situation. They never wanted to be heroes. You've acted as warriors and doing what you have done. But they are. War Party. Yes, yes, you are listening to one of the greatest 80s metal bands of all time. We are talking about Man o War. You are listening to Spirit Horse of the Cherokee off the 1982 album Triumph of Steel. And if you don't know who Man o War is, you are missing out on life, my friends, because... They are unlike any band that you have ever seen or heard. I promise you that. 
their album covers are worth the price of admission alone. But they all like feature the band, and um, they're all like oiled up, and they're like their muscles are like glistening, and, and they have these furry pants on, or some even wearing like these little furry underwear, and these furry boots, and they look like they're holding swords, and they look like they just stepped off the set of like uh, 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 Conan the Barbarian, the, the Schwarzenegger one, not that. That abortion of a film that Momoa did. I'm talking about the real stuff, guys. Conan the Barbarian with, with Schwarzenegger and Conan the Destroyer. But these guys are amazing. And what I love about Man of War is that, um, you know, they have the consistency of this guy, of these guys. <laughs> they are the same fan that they started in 1982, and they are still making music today that sounds just like this. And they're, uh, it's just amazing. Uh, it's, I cannot brag enough. I cannot say enough about how much I love Manowar. I mean, from the first, like, song off the album, it'll make you want to go just pick up some heavy shit and just throw it across your yard. It'll make you want to, like, go to the gym. It'll make you want to, like, just, you know, tear flesh off of bone, you know, with your teeth over an open fire. It's just that good. It's just... Yes, listen to this. It doesn't get any better than Man of War, but yeah, check this out. Check the song out. I mean, it's it's called Spirit Horrors of the Cherokee, Triumph of Steel. So, Legabas G, Ajayabas, welcome to Skoden Cinema. I am your host, Tyler. Today, we are going to be discussing the 1988 film called War Party, starring Billy Wirth and Kevin Dillon. What the f- Kevin Dillon? Are you serious? <laughs> yes, I am, and we'll get to that, for I promise. But there's also some real native heavy hitters in this film. Um, first up, you've got uh, uh, Tattoo Cardinal. What a legend. And you've also got uh, Tim freaking Sampson, the son of Will Sampson, who's one of my heroes. And you also have Rodney A. Grant from Dance with Wolves in this. Uh, Dennis Banks is in this, and Richard Way, Richard Ray Whitman, who's like an Oklahoma legend. So there are some some real heavy hitters. You just got to get past those two leads, but we'll get there, I promise. So uh, War Party, yeah, uh, I got to be honest. I, I came to this film a little later than I probably should have. Um, I remember renting this at uh, Super Video uh, for the very first time back when I was a teenager, and all my Oklahoma, you know, friends will, will remember uh, uh, Super Video. It was right off of 81st and 145th, right across the street from Homeland, and and uh, Pizza Hut was there back when it was still the Red Roof Pizza Hut. I got a story about that, but I'll save it for another day. But anyway, um, I remember coming across this film because um, I was pretty much enamored with um, Dances with Wolves. And I know, I know. <laughs> but hey, at that time, we all were. Let's let's be honest. And so um, I was just sort of like trying to find any type of like native-centric film that I could find. And I didn't know, you know, a whole lot about movies back then. I just was looking at the covers, and that's what I would would buy or or rent. And so, you know, after plowing through films like, um, you know, uh, uh, The Outlaw, Josie Wales, and um, Jeremiah Johnson, and, um, uh, oh my gosh, what else, Billy Jack, and uh, Little Big Man, and, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, 
Um, I, I came across War Party, and it was one of the very first films that I can remember, um, one of these little video store gems that um, featured natives um, in like a contemporary setting. You know, this was before I saw Powell Highway. This was before I saw Clear Cut. This is before I saw, I mean, this is the first time that I can remember seeing like a native-centric film featuring contemporary characters. And I slammed that thing into the top loader and I watched the hell out of it. And I remember thinking after it was over, that is a cool ass action movie. This is a cool ass action movie. It reminded me a little bit of like Rambo mixed with like Red Dawn or something like that. It was just, it was a, it, it was same but kind of different. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, I just loved it. I loved this movie. And years later, you know, honestly, I, I kind of forgot about it. And I was, when I started this podcast up, I went to my trusty old storage building and I dug out all of my old VHS tapes and lo and behold, uh, war party was in there. Cause I knew I had a copy of it and, uh, this is on VHS. And so this is the copy that we'll be talking about or we will be reviewing. Um, but it is available on YouTube for free if you want to go watch it on YouTube. But I do have to warn you that I think it has French subtitles. But you can overlook that. But uh, check out the film. It is on YouTube. So I guess let's just get going here. So War Party, yeah. Here's the tagline for the film. A century ago, the cavalry massacred the Indians at the Battle of Milk River, dot, 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 and now the Indians are ready to fight back. If that doesn't catch your attention, I don't know what possibly could. That, that tagline is awesome, and that would that warrants enough to, to go check out this film. So I'm actually looking now at my um, uh, VHS copy, and it says it right there on the cover. It's got Billy Worth on it, and he's holding a tomahawk above his head. It's got a very young Kevin Dillon. He's holding a rifle. They're both on horses. There's like a truck with like white guys in the bed of it. Um, it's this powerful nine plus by Gary Franklin, you know, on the cover. And then there's that beautiful tagline. And that tagline does this movie justice. It is amazing. So let's flip it over now, and we're going to look at the uh, box description before we get into the uh, the cast here. So it says, Milk River, Montana. 100 years ago, the U.S. Calvary massacred a tribe of Blackfeet Indians. Now, many of the townspeople see the, cent the centennial as a tourist opportunity and stage a reenactment of their famous battle using rubber tomahawks and blank ammunition. But for the Indian-born Sonny Crow Killer, Billy Worth, and Skitty Harris, Kevin Dillon, the day becomes much more than a recreation of the past. Resentment and racial tensions explode when a vindictive cavalryman fires live rounds and murders one of the young Indians. Sonny and Skitty take, a swift, take swift revenge, reigniting a battle that never really ended, and Milk River runs red with blood once more. Sonny and Skitty find themselves leading a war party, stalked by a renegade by renegades and bounty hunters, risking their lives in honor of their ancestors and the memory they cannot let die. A film from Hemdale, a major independent. Yes, that's awesome. 
So that's the box description. This is the VHS copy. Go to YouTube, check it out, because now we're going to jump straight into the cast. So the film stars Billy Worth as Sonny Crow Killer, and let's just, you know, let's just kick it off. He has no tribal affiliation. Um, he was discovered by a photographer while he was going to school at Brown University, which is kind of ironic. But anyway, <laughs> he almost immediately started modeling, though, in New York City in the mid-'80s for magazines like Seventeen, GQ, and Interview. And um, when you see this movie, he's a strikingly handsome dude. It's, like, not fair. But while he was at Brown, he also did his very first commercial, and it was for Diet Pepsi. And then that sort of led to him getting a couple of roles on television and in movies. The very first television show that he was in was like this little bit part in The Equalizer. And after he got that little, you know, bit by the acting bug, so to speak, he decided to move to L.A. and start an acting career. And his uh, first movie was called Seven Minutes in Heaven. But it really wasn't until he was cast in the classic teen vampire flick, The Lost Boys, um, when his career actually just exploded. So despite having, like I said, no confirmed degree of Indian blood, um, he was cast as the lead in this film, War Party. And I say, um, I say that because um, there was a bit of a blowback at the time by this, this casting decision. And Worth said at the time, you know, get this, um, he said that his great-great-grandmother, and I'm quoting him here, on his mother's side was Indian, but he doesn't know from what nation. So he decided to reach out to a genealogist to trace his roots. And that was in 1988, and as far as I know, nothing has been confirmed. So apparently the results were either lost in the mail or he's just decided to move on. And by moving on, I totally mean uh, appearing as a contestant on American Gladiators. But I'm confident <laughs> that he convened with a genealogist again to uh, trace his uh, Roman and Italian roots. Um, but if anything comes through the wire on this, I, I will certainly let you know. So um, the next cast member, I've got to ask this question. Have you ever heard a native speak with, like, this really thick New York accent? Well, if you haven't, then check out the second lead in the Crapfest casting department, Kevin Dillon as Skitty Harris. And I think it pretty much goes to say uh, that he has also no tribal affiliation. In fact, he is actually 100% Irish descent with maybe a peppering um, of German and Scottish thrown in for flavor. Um, but besides being known as Matt Dillon's little brother, I remember him first as Bunny in Oliver Stone's Platoon. And man, at the time, I thought that was such a badass character. And then I saw him like in the Blob remake, and that pretty much uh, made me a lifelong fan. So I'm giving him a little shit here, but... Um, you know, it, he took the job, so what, what can I say? But he, I, I do like the guy a lot. Uh, of course, you know, you can't forget him um, as Johnny Trauma in HBO's Entourage. And I don't care what anybody says. That's a kick-ass show. So. Uh, but let's just kind of talk really quick about the 
the cast here um, because when you cast non-native actors in these um, native roles, the term that they use for that is called red face. And if you think red face is no longer employed in Hollywood, then you need to check out Yellowstone <laughs> because there's a lot of red face going on in that in that in that television show. But uh, let's just, like I said, let's just get a, a quick history lesson out of the way just right off the bat so that we can get to the movie. One of the earliest examples of red face can be traced back to when some pissed off white colonialist dressed as Mohawk Indians and they decided to dump some tea into the Boston Harbor way back in 1773 in protest of British rule. And then sometime later, um, in the late 1940s, um, Hollywood decided that it was still a good idea to employ blackface with just this reckless abandon, thereby kind of presenting its own aesthetic roots in vaudeville and minstrel shows, sort of maybe like peeking through all the glitz and glamour, I guess. But blackface was, um, you know, based on these really deeply ingrained racial stereotypes. Um, and they were just really cruel, like, caricatures. You have D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, for example. Um, it cast a Caucasian man named Walter Long as um, Gus, the renegade Negro. And then in the musical comedy, uh, famously, Al Jolston, um, and then you also have Eddie Cantor, you have Mickey Rooney, you have even wholesome Judy Garland and Irene Dunn, just among others, all appeared in blackface at one point in their career. But then after World War II, the practice almost completely stopped. And the reason why was because the NAACP finally led a boycott of radio shows such as Amos and Andy, where, um, once again, white actors sort of mimic um, African-American speech and vernacular. But if you've ever seen the film, um, or if you've never seen the film uh, Bamboozled by Spike Lee, then you, you probably should because it's just like this really extremely biting satire dealing with um, proper black representation in television. And... Um, you should go watch that because it's going to explain this concept that um, that I'm trying to tell you about much better um, than I probably should tell you. But anyway, um, go watch that movie. But despite the stoppage of blackface, Hollywood, however, um, had no problems at all continuing the practice of um, yellow face or red face. Once again, um, D.W. Griffith cast Richard um, Barthelmus as a Chinese servant in Broken Blossoms. And then you have Warner Olin and Peter Lorre. Um, they just made their careers basically playing Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto, respectively. And then even as late as like 1960, um, you get that really um, uh, cold Mickey Rooney portrayal of a Japanese neighbor in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And that really just takes the prize for just like uh, the viciousness of for, for its racism. But red face apparently is still not a problem. Um, even today when dollars are at stake. <coughs> Johnny Depp. <coughs> and might I add, by the way, that Disney's Lone Ranger, did you guys know that that was nominated for an Academy Award? And you want to know for what? Makeup. 
Buh. Hollywood has happily depicted Native American leaders as white men in red face. There was Jeff Chandler and John Hodiak as Cochise. You have Rock Hudson as Taza, uh, son of Cochise. Chuck Connors um, played Geronimo. Burt Lancaster played uh, Masai. You have Victor Mature and Anthony Quinn. They both betrayed Crazy Horse. J. Carroll Nash as Sitting Bull. Jody Lawrence played Pocahontas. Elvis Presley played Joe Lightcloud. Burt Reynolds starred as Navajo Joe. Kirk Douglas, Rock Hudson, Charles Bronson, Dustin Hoffman, and even Billy Jack himself, Tom Laughlin. But I could keep going, but let's just, instead of talking about these potatoes, let, let's start talking about the meat. So let's just start right now with, um, to me, the highlight of this film, and that is Tim freaking Sampson as Warren Cutfoot. And those of you who have followed the show know what a huge fan of the Sampson clan that I am. Uh, I did the spotlight episode on his father, Will Sampson. And if you have not heard that, uh, do me a favor. Go back and listen to that. And um, when you're done, make sure you leave a five-star review because it helps people find the podcast. But uh, Tim freaking Sampson is uh, Muskogee Creek. Um, and uh, like I said, his father was a legendary screen actor, Will Sampson. Um, Will Sampson is probably the most visible um, American Indian actor of his generation. But Tim Sampson, he makes his film debut here um, in War Party. Uh, he was full blood Creek. He was raised in Oklahoma. He was an expert horseman. And he started out in movies and television working alongside his father as a stuntman when he was about 18. Um, speaking of his father, Samson said in an interview that um, I was really proud of him um, and that as far as following in his footsteps, sure, I'm going to follow him because um, he really helped out a lot. Not just me. Um, he opened a lot of doors for uh, Native Americans as actors. So, sadly, um, I really couldn't dig up a whole lot about him other than his uh, internet movie database um, uh, profile or biography. But I do know um, that he was an expert horseman. Um, I do know that he lived most of his life with um, his father, Will Sampson, um, up in the Angeles National Forest. And um, he got his, his first uh, kind of film uh, stunt work with, on Outlaw Josie Wells. Uh, he's in the background, and so I know that was sort of one of his very first roles, if not his first role. But um, I'm going to probably have to drag his daughter um, on the show. We've been trying to um, coordinate a time where we could sort of meet up, but just just one of those things where we both have you know just packed schedules. But I'm hoping I can get her on the show, so if you're listening, I'm still interested in, in having you on this show. I haven't forgotten um, and I'm hoping that you can help us fill in this huge, huge gap um, in, in your father's life. So, uh, Next up is Tantu Cardinal. She plays Sonny's mother. What could I possibly say about Tantu Cardinal that has not already been said? Um, but she is Cree and Matisse. Um, Cardinal has broken barriers for on-screen representation for indigenous people um, just about her entire career. Um, she has acted in more than 120 different films, television, and theater roles, including um, Dances with Wolves, uh, Black Robes, Smoke Signals, and Through the Black Spruce. 
Sioux City, Lakota Woman, Legends of the Fall, Older Than America, and one that I'm really stoked for, the upcoming Scorsese project, Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, she also worked on the street, or excuse me, the TV series Street Legal. She was on Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. She was in Stumptown, Longmire, Westworld, and Blackstone. Um, she is known for her strong presence and the depth of her performances and her activism on behalf of the environment. She was born um, the youngest of four children to Julia Cardinal, a woman of Cree and Matisse descent, and a Caucasian father who left when she was only six weeks old. Uh, her grandmother became um, the children's caregiver when Cardinal was just six months old. Uh, her mother lived in poverty uh, up until she died at a very young age, and Cardinal experienced even further family tragedies when her sister was taken during the 60s scoop, um, and her brother was murdered at the age of 24. Uh, the 60s scoops, for those of you not in the know, um, it refers to the large-scale removal or quote-unquote scooping of indigenous children from their homes, communities, and families of birth uh, through the 1960s and their subsequent adoption into uh, predominantly uh, non-indigenous uh, middle-class families across the United States and Canada. This experience obviously has left many adoptees with a lost sense of cultural identity and, of course, the physical and emotional separation uh, from their birth family um, continues to affect most of these adult adoptees and in indigenous communities uh, to this very day. But uh, she was raised in the hamlet of Anzac, Alberta, near Fort McMurray, and the lack of electricity um, inspired her to really use her imagination while she was out playing in the bush. Her grandmother had nicknamed her Tantu um, after the insect repellent that they used while picking blueberries together. She taught Cardinal the Cree language, uh, the traditional ways of their culture, and the difficulties that she would face growing up Matisse, uh, Matisse in Canada. Cardinal has said that it was um, kind of walking behind her grandmother where she first learned how to act. She starred in her first feature film, the romantic historical drama Anne-Marie, in 1978, and it was filmed in Edmonton. Uh, Anthony Hall of Cinema Canada cited her dynamic performance as one of the film's few highlights. After small roles in action films like Death Hunt and the sports drama Running Brave, Cardinal had a breakthrough playing um, uh, Ann Wheeler in Loyalties, or excuse me, in Ann Wheeler's Loyalties in 1986. The film drew positive reviews for its accurate portrayal of indigenous life and for Canada's power, or Cardinal's powerful performance. Cardinal was nominated for a Genie Award for Best Actress. She also received Best Actress awards from the Alberta Motion Picture Industry, the American Indian Film Festival, and several international film festivals. After moving to Los Angeles in 1986, she appeared in the films Candy Mountain in 1987, War Party in 1988, and as well as the TV movies Gunsmoke, Return to Dodge, and Divided Loyalties. She gained international recognition, however, playing Black Shaw in the Oscar-winning Dances with Wolves in 1990, opposite Kevin Costner and Graham Greene. Cardinal impressed Costner and casting director Elizabeth Lustig by translating her role into Cree for the audition and by conveying the experience that she brought to the role. As Lustig told Entertainment Weekly in 1991, there's a certain hardship in her face that's very appealing, and you can tell that her life has not been an easy one. 
Tantu's legacy is a combination of acting and advocacy. Her career broke down barriers for indigenous actors and especially um, indigenous women actors. She has used the power of positive representation to challenge the negative images and stereotypes and to honor the history of indigenous people in Canada. I've always felt that as an actor, we have the courage to go into the territory of hard experiences and tell the truth of what's happening to us as human beings, Cardinal said in 2010. That's where you find understanding. You don't come through generations and generations of genocide and Holocaust to be wimps, to be portrayed as monotone and one-sided. Preach on, sister. Next up in this ensemble cast is Dennis Banks, who plays Sonny's father. That's just kind of how he's credited. Um, he is Ojibwe, and Banks was an activist, teacher, and author. Uh, he was a longtime leader of the American Indian Movement, which he co-founded in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1968 to represent urban Indians. He was born on Leech Lake Indian Reservation in northern Minnesota in 1937. Banks' mother abandoned him to be raised by grandparents, but he was separated from that family, too, when he was taken at the age of five to live at a federal Indian boarding school run by the Bureau of Indian, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Its goals were to help um, so on, or quote unquote, civilize and educate Native American children in English and mainstream culture. In effect, uh, basically to assimilate them. Children were prohibited to speak their native languages or practice their traditions. Vocational training was emphasized, and Banks ran away often, returning to live with the, his family at Leech Lake. But when he was 17, Banks decided to join the U.S. Air Force and was stationed in Japan. He was fascinated to be in a place where Europeans were the minority. During this period in 1956, um, he was ordered to shoot to kill anti-base protesters at the Sanagawa struggle. These events had a profound influence on him. In 1968, um, he returned um, back to the U.S. where he co-founded the American Indian Movement. Its purpose was seeking to ensure and protect the civil rights of Native Americans living in urban areas. Banks participated in the 1969-1971 occupation of Alcatraz Island, initiated by Indian students from San Francisco of the Red Power Movement. It was intended to highlight Native American issues and promote Indian sovereignty, sovereignty um, on their own lands. In 1973, Banks went on to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota when the local Lakota Civil Rights Organization asked for help in dealing with law enforcement authorities in nearby border towns. Residents of the Pine Ridge believed the police had failed to prosecute the murder of a young Lakota man. Under Banks's leadership, AIM led a protest in Custer, South Dakota in 1973 against judicial proceedings that had resulted in the reduction of charges of a white man to a second-degree offense for murdering a Native American. Banks began working with Anime Aquash in the American Indian Movement. After the Wounded Knee Occupation, where FBI agents seized the occupation, uh, cut off electricity, water, and food supplies to Wounded Knee, uh, when it was still winter in South Dakota and prohibited the entry of the media and the U.S. government tried starving out the occupants, AIM activists smuggled food and medical supplies in past roadblocks set up by Dick Wilson and supported by the U.S. government. Uh, there were many suspicious events surrounding the murders of um, the AIM activists and their subsequent investigations or lack thereof. Deaths of AIM activists went uninvestigated, even though there was an abundance of FBI agents on Pine Ridge. 
at the time. For instance, Anna Mae Aquash was an activist who had been present at Wounded Knee and was framed by the FBI as a spy for the government. And it was later revealed that most of this campaign to discredit her can be traced to Douglas Durham, an FBI informant. Aquash was sadly found dead near Highway 73 on February 24, 1976. The FBI ruled her cause of death was exposure, suggesting alcohol had been involved, even though there was none detected in her bloodstream. Dissatisfied with this finding, an exhumation um, was requested by Oscro, which found that Aquash had been shot in the back of the head at close range after being beaten severely in the face with many of her teeth missing from the beating. After disappearing from Denver in late 1975, Aquash was found murdered in February 1976 by a rancher near the Pine Ridge Reservation. This murder has been unsolved for decades. AIM became involved in the political faction wanting to oust Richard Wilson, the elected chairman of the Oglala Sioux Tribe. Opponents believe that he was acting um, autocratically, including recruiting a private police force. A failure of an impeachment proceeding against him led to a large protest. Banks and other AIM activists occupied Wounded Knee. After a siege of 71 days by federal armed law enforcement, which received national attention, the occupation was finally ended. A U.S. Marshal was shot and paralyzed in March. A Cherokee and an Oglala's Lakota were fatally shot in April 1973 by federal agents. Civil rights activist Ray Robinson, who had joined the protesters, disappeared during the occupation and is also uh, believed to have been murdered. Thirty resident families returned to the village to find that their homes and businesses had been destroyed by the federal agents. The town was never rebuilt. Banks, principal negotiator and leader of the Wounded Knee, uh, Banks was the principal negotiator and leader of the Wounded Knee occupation. Subsequent investigation of Wilson found questionable and accounting questionable accounting practices, and Wilson had sold off tens and thousands of acres of the reservation to mining companies. As a result, in the involvement of Custer and Wounded Knee, Banks and 300 uh, others were arrested by the federal government and faced trial. He was acquitted of the Wounded Knee charges but was convicted of incitement to riot and assault stemming from the earlier confrontation at Custer. Surprisingly, as far as acting goes, he only has three credits to his name. Uh, this film, War Party, Older Than America, and Last of the Mohicans. And he also starred in a music video that he directed. Next up is a familiar face to all the hook D's out there, uh, Rodney A. Grant. He plays Pete the Scout. Um, he is Omaha. In fact, he was raised on the Omaha Reservation in Macy, Nebraska. After his biological parents abandoned him, his grandparents raised him for six months of age until 1982. Besides Dances with Wolves, where he played um, the heartthrob, wind in his hair, uh, he also appeared in films such as Ghosts of Mars, Wild Wild West, Geronimo, The American Legend, White Wolves 3, Cry of the White Wolf, Wagons East, The Substitute, and Pow Wow Highway. Uh, he also portrayed um, Chingachgook in the television series Hawkeye and also had guest roles in television series such as Due South, um, Stargate, SG-1. Um, he also portrayed Crazy Horse in the 1991 television movie Son of the Morning Star. Uh, Grant is a member of the Omaha tribe of Nebraska. 
He has been very active in youth activities and had served on the Native American Advisory Board for the Girls and Boys Clubs of America. He has five grown children, three from a previous marriage and two from a previous relationship, and he now resides in Southern California. Next up is Richard Ray Whitman. Um, he plays Harold. He is uh, Yuchi and Muskogee, and I wanted to give a special shout-out to him uh, because what a unique little character he is um, just around. He's had a, sort of like a local legend uh, here in Oklahoma. He is a, a multidisciplinary visual artist, poet, and actor. He was born near Gypsy, Oklahoma in uh, 1949. And like many Yuchis, um, Whitman is rolled in the Muscogee Nation, and his Yuchi name is Soyaha. Uh, he grew up in Oklahoma and attended Bristow High School. Um, he also attended the Institute of American Indian Arts, the California Institution of the Arts, and the Oklahoma School of Photography um, in Oklahoma City. Whitman began his art career as a painter and expanded to photography, installation, and video art. In 1973, he participated in the 71-day occupation of Wounded Knee, and he created art during the entire time during the occupation. Whitman is known for his black-and-white photography portraying contemporary Native realities, especially his Street Chief series from the 1970s and 1980s. Street Chiefs features images of homeless Native men, primarily in downtown Oklahoma City. Uh, quote, the contemporary Indian in the isolation of the city canyons and rural reservations is usually avoided. The boredom, pain, frustration, poverty of the reality counterbalance of our lives is harsh, unattractive, and unmarketable. End quote. His, photo, uh, his, photo, his photographic portraits are compassionate and empathetic to the lives of homeless natives and places, uh, places them in the larger context of Indian removal, which forces, uh, tr uh, which forced tribes from all over the country to Indian territory. From the 1980s onward, uh, Whitman has incorporated text and computer graphics in his photography to create collage or mixed media. His socio-political uh, informed work often deals with the issues of homeland and disposition. His acting credits include Lakota Woman, a very early Sterling Harjo feature, Four Sheets to the Wind, and Barking Water. Missionary Man, directed by Dolph Lundgren. What? Dolph Lundgren? Oh, I've got to check that one out. Um, Cherokee Word for Water, Winter in the Blood, Neither Wolf Nor Dog, Drunk Town's Finest, and you can actually catch him most recently as Old Man Fixico in Sterling Harjo's series Reservation Dogs on Hulu. Uh, next up is Saginaw Grant. Um, I'm not going to get too much into him because actually we, we covered him uh, on the Black Cloud episode. And if you haven't listened to the Black Cloud episode, do me a favor. Go download it, um, listen to it, and make sure at the end of it you leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes because it helps everybody find the podcast. All right, Turtle. So we're 30, almost 39 minutes into this review. And now let's start talking about the movie, shall we? So I'm going to read to you the back of the VHS, the box description that I have. Um, this movie is available on um, YouTube. It does have French subtitles, but you can ignore those. It's not that distracting. I checked it out. But anyway, um, this is from the, uh, the VHS copy that I, I'm currently holding in my hand. It says, Milk River, Montana. 100 years ago, the U.S. Cavalry massacred a tribe of Blackfeet Indians. 
Now, many of the townspeople see the centennial as a tourist opportunity to stage a reenactment of their famous battles using rubber tomahawks and blank ammunition. But for Indian-born <coughs> Sonny Crow Killer, <laughs> Billy Worth, and Skitty Harris, Indian-born Skitty Harris, uh, uh, Kevin Dillon, uh, the day becomes much more than a recreation of the past. Uh, resentment and racial tension explode when a vindictive cavalryman fires live rounds and murders one of the young Indians. Sonny and Skitty take swift revenge, reigniting a battle that had never really ended. And Milk River runs with uh, blood once more. Sonny and Skitty find themselves leading a war party, stalked by renegades and bounty hunters, risking their lives in honor of their ancestors and the memory they cannot let die. Uh, yeah, so that that's pretty accurate description. I really like that. Um, it does sort of uh, kind of paint it in a uh, action film brush, which, mm, sure, but um, it's it's a lot more than that. There's a lot more depth to it. Uh, the film was actually directed by Frank Rodham, um, who was a former advertising copywriter and maker of documentary films for the BBC. Uh, his most famous um, feature film, I guess, was his directorial debut, um, Quadrafina, in 1979. And it was based on the rock opera uh, by The Who. His first American film, though, was Lords of Discipline in 1982, and it was a tense drama set at a military school. Um, he followed that up in 1985 with The Bride, which was basically critically panned, but was more of an atmospheric reworking of 1935's Bride of Frankenstein. And then after helming the unsuccessful screen version of the stage play K2, about two men who set out to climb the world's second highest mountain, um, he spent several years developing his small screen remake of Moby Dick. Um, he was also, though, however, most famous now for being the mastermind behind the mega-hit television franchise MasterChef with uh, Gordon Ramsay. Uh, in an interview that he did with UK journalist uh, Richard Keith Wolfe, he was asked to comment on this movie. And Wolfe asks him, um, another of your American feature films, War Party, concerns the relationship between Native Americans and the American immigrant descendant population. What are your thoughts about Native American culture and their role in modern America? And I found this to be very interesting because here's what he had to say. America propagates the idea of it being the perfect noble society when, in fact, there are many things wrong with its history, not at least um, of all the genocide of the Native Americans. Now, remember, this interview was conducted probably back in 1999, which he was sort of way ahead of his time in this thinking. They were systematically wiped out uh, for the for the time, I should say. Um, but he says they he goes on to say they were systematically wiped out and pushed uh, onto reservations. When I made War Party, I was shocked to see how the prejudice still continues and the Native Americans still continue to live in poor circumstances. It's as if they've been wiped from the history of America. I was very very privileged to spend nearly a year on and off reservations and being accepted as part of their community. I believe that they are still being attacked and distracted by being allowed to open casinos and follow the supposed American dream, whilst not consolidating their rich history and practices. War Party was about contemporary Native American life. It was somewhat controversial, and the New York Times stated that Frank Rodham was starting a war that hadn't happened yet. 
The film was raided by the FBI twice, and I am not certain that it did not have a negative effect on my future Hollywood film career. Every time a studio offered me a picture, there came a point where they soon removed the offer. So here you have another instance where, like Bugashki um, and Clear Cut, you have these Europeans coming over with no really sense of true American history. And when they um, did a little bit of research, they were shocked at what they found, and they did their very best, I believe, to put that up onto the, the screens. And if you haven't listened to Clear Cut or seen Clear Cut, uh, you definitely owe it to yourself to check that film out and then also listen to, to, the, to the two episodes that I did on it and make sure you leave a five-star review. Uh, but it was written by Spencer Eastman, whose uh, Hollywood, career in Hollywood was, was cut short by lung cancer. Sadly, he only had five credits to his name, and he passed away before the completion of this film. Uh, the only interesting fact that I could find out about him, that um, he was once engaged and had a son with Cindy Walsh. Yeah, yeah he and Carol Potter from uh, Beverly Hills 90210 were briefly engaged. But sadly, um, lung cancer would, would take him before um, the two were able to, to be married. The film was shot by Brian Tufano, who was a pretty accomplished cinematographer from Shepherd's Bush in the UK. He actually cut his teeth on photographing plays and drama productions for the BBC before finally transitioning to film. He is Danny Boyle's right-hand man, shooting most, um, if not all, of his films from Shallow Grave to Train Spotting to A Life Less Ordinary to Billy Elliot. So he's got uh, some, some real credentials there. Like Clear Cut Before It and Pow Wow Highway, uh, War Party rode the tidal wave of what I refer to um, as, as native sympathy films ushered forth by Dances with Wolves. However, this was released a whole two years before uh, Wolves, and it received very little screening, and it received a very quiet VHS release. It wasn't until the huge success of Dances with Wolves that uh, they tried to re-release it in theaters. And like Clear Cut and Pow Wow Highway, it also attempted to place the Indian in a contemporary framework. And as much as I completely worship Pow Wow Highway and Clear Cut, um, the only comparison that I can really draw from this film is, um, you know, the native actors sort of get this, the chance to sort of unabashedly um, act out uh, all this colonial-induced anger and, and angst. Um, Hollowell's film guide describes War Party, um, quote, as a mundane excuse for a not very interesting modern-day Western and film critic Julian Stringer said that the film's message is it takes excitement and danger to release the pent-up, dulled emotions of both Indians on the reservation and the white men in town. The result is a straightforward celebration of action movie cliches. Once again, uh, with my tongue planted firmly in my cheek, I kind of partially agree with that. Just, I mean, in... Uh, Maybe I don't agree with that, actually, now that I think about it. But I'll get into that more as we kind of delve into the film. Um, I, but I do believe these assessments are very, very unfortunate because they completely missed the intent of this film and what the filmmaker's intent was. Um, there seems to be, to me, very little doubt that Rodham and Eastman carefully researched the stereotypes of natives depicted in film in order to um, at least attempt to produce a product um, that, uh, let me flip this, sorry about that, uh, that at least um, 
you know, attempted to, to kind of deconstruct those stereotypes. The idea, though, is probably lost on your average white audience. Um, but for, for us natives, this is a completely different film. So I wouldn't expect um, film critics to truly grasp what, what the filmmakers are trying to do. And it's not produced by an all-native crew, as mentioned earlier. The cast is, you know, mostly native. <laughs> um, but you have to think that some of the choices for the native roles um, did serve kind of like this uh, uh, inside joke, so to speak, to native audiences. And I'm f- uh, clearly referring to uh, Ben Crowkiller, who is uh, portrayed by Dennis Banks. Uh, in the film, uh, Crowkiller is, you know, he's like this very much assimilated uh, tribal leader. He desperately spends half the movie trying to appease the white mayor and governor. And I do think that for Native audiences, the juxtaposition is is pretty damn funny, if you think about it, Um, just sort of given his his, um, past involvement with with AIM. Um, But this movie obviously was inspired uh, by Young Guns or Young Guns 2. The music in the film um, is clearly... uh, uh, inspired by that and it's cleverly chosen uh, particularly the very slow melodic tune that both opens and closes the film um, I do feel that this repletion is important because you know without giving away spoilers yet uh, the film itself goes full circle ending with a scene um, almost identical to the first all right, so now we're 49 minutes in. <laughs> Let's finally start talking about this damn movie. Shut up. Uh, so the film, it, it opens with this intense, ominous soundtrack as the credit sequence introduces us to the cast and crew. But the opening image of the movie um, is sort of like this gentle, trickling stream that um, spins and twists before finally just turning to blood. And we then follow uh, this, uh, like a fallen feather, um, as the current leads us straight into a deceased traditional Indian, and he's lying on his side, sort of half submerged in the water, and his throat is slit ear to ear, Uh, but what's eerie about it is his eyes are wide open, and he's wearing your traditional plains Indian regalia, like fringed buckskin, um, leggings, a headdress. Um, but he's clutching like this brightly wrapped, um, I can't tell if it's beaded or not, but it's um, painted. Um, but it's in his left hand. He's clutching a tomahawk. And it's a strikingly horrific opening visual and we uh, that we linger on. Um, and it's kind of, you know, really kind of the camera pushes in real tight. And then we see this U.S. cavalryman with a buckskin glove on, and he kind of walks up and removes the tomahawk uh, from the native uh, man's hand, or the native chief's hand. And as he saunters off, you can sort of kind of uh, catch the hand slightly moving, uh, the Indian's hand slightly moving as it's revealed that he's actually not dead, but literally dying. And to me, it was very difficult to watch that. But the camera then follows the soldier as he makes his way back towards camp. Um, And as he's walking, he's sort of stepping over the corpses of, like, all of these slain natives. um, And he's walking around the carcasses of dead horses. And he kind of stops to observe two other soldiers. And they're literally, like, piling up uh, dead bodies um, in a scene, to me, that really resembles um, the atrocities of the Jewish Holocaust. So the lieutenant... 
hands the tomahawk over to his commanding officer who's wearing this buckskin coat, very reminiscent of Custer's, and I'm sure that was intentional. Um, but this, uh, this uh, commanding officer, he's just kind of finishing up this uh, report when a photographer, uh, you know, uh, kind of poses the men for a picture with their trophy. Um, the explosion of this old-timey flash uh, spooks three beautiful painted Appaloosa horses uh, who break free and stampede through the camp. The camera follows them until they reach a clearing, and we hear the sounds of this modern rock song being played. And I really think it was such a creative way to transition the viewer from this old world uh, to the new world where our story is set. And it certainly fits the classic Native American sense of time as circular uh, rather than just linear. It's a really just neat piece of directing and photography, and it just makes a great uh, story sense. The camera then tracks to this beat-up old red uh, res truck just hauling ass down this dirt road. Uh, music uh, introduces and comments ironically on the film's change of world. In the cab, jamming to the sounds of All Right Now by the band Free. Uh, and of course, I can't help but think of the irony between uh, a song title by a band called Free. And I'm not sure if that was intentional or not, but I just I love it all the same. But in this cab is the incredibly strikingly handsome Billy Worth as Sonny Crow Killer. I mean, this dude looks like um, a cross between... Jeff Tate from the Queensryche Operation Mindcrime era and uh, like Peter and David Paul, the twin bodybuilders in Barbarian, uh, the Barbarians. And I'm comfortable enough to admit just how amazingly good looking this dude is. It's, it's watching this film. It's not fair how good looking this guy is. But anyway, um, he's driving through the res and he's hitting these just incredibly massive chug holes. Uh, passing houses in just various states of dilapidation. And there's kids, like, literally playing in these mud holes, and there's, like, clothes twisting in the wind, strung across clotheslines, etc. It's just sort of letting the audience in on the fact that we are in a very low-income or poverty-stricken environment. And he pulls up to, like, this little two-bedroom house, um, and he blasts his horn, hollering for Skitty. Uh, Sonny changes the radio station just long enough to hear, um, like, can you feel it? It's the power of the glory of God uh, on the radio. And although I'd say a majority of natives today are Christians, I do think this little Easter egg, again, not sure if it was intentional or not, but I believe that it could possibly kind of been a jab um, at the missionaries who raided that very land in the past. So enter a shirtless Kevin Dillon into our story, and I had to laugh because he doesn't even look like one one uh, 132nd native. 
Um, even like this really cheap black dye job on his head, um, he just does not really um, pass. But I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that he's not a good actor, but who, whoever cast him in this was clearly sniffing glue because you really have to just completely suspend your sense of belief to just buy into him as native. I at least um, have to give the film a little credit here because as ridiculous as Kevin Dillon is in this role with his real thick New York accent, it does, however, challenge the um, Hollywood idea of mixed blood identity. Um, we'll talk about it here a little bit more in the film, but um, yeah, so uh, let's just get on with it. So anyways, we uh, cut to the boys, and they're, they're trying on tuxedos because we learn that Sonny is getting married soon. And as they're admiring themselves in the mirror, uh, a drunken Saginaw Grant, whose character name is Freddie Manwolf, he comes staggering by and starts like um, beating on the window. Uh, and I got to say, there's a great deal of drinking that goes on in this film, but there's only one alcoholic character. And that's uh, Freddie Manwolf. And everyone in town treats this guy just badly, including his own tribe. It's as if because, you know, he's a drunk that it gives everyone in town a reason just to kind of like, you know, give him the brush or or just be completely disrespectful, um, even though uh, he's an elder. Hey, what's he laughing at? Fucker hasn't had a bath in six months. He's laughing at me. He doesn't understand, Sonny. He's crazy. Hey, old man, go take a hike. Go buy yourself another bottle, will you? Hey, Sonny, don't insult him. That's bad luck. Especially the day you're buying your wedding outfit. You got any money? Maybe you should throw him a couple bucks. You're shitting me, right? Hell yeah. Well, you know, it's just these <laughs> cuffs. I don't like these cuffs. So I'm sure I've harped on this before, and I'm not ever, ever going to pretend that substance abuse with our people doesn't exist. But every time I see a drunk Indian on screen, it just really gets in my craw. To anyone outside the culture, uh, the, world, the, the word alcohol is synonymous with Native Americans, and that just really hurts my heart. Um, don't believe me? All you have to do is just scroll through any uh, news media articles on Facebook or, or, or Reddit um, concerning Native stories, and you're going to find several off-color jokes about it in the comments section. And again, um, I will never say that it's not an issue within the community, but I just I can't help to think that portrayals such as this in film and television and other media are perpetually, uh, perpetually, you know, keeping this stigma burning. And I talked about it a lot in the Black Cloud episode. That you know, eight out of eight out of ten times that you see natives drinking in movies, it's it's always going to be portrayed as abuse. They're drinking until they're drunk, or they're way past the limit. And you know, thank God that we we finally have these new, uh, refreshing takes on contemporary culture to help um, stifle this uh, stigmatic trope. But, uh, you know, as far as, as the character Freddie Manwolf, um, you know, he, he sort of lost touch with himself, perhaps. But the other's treatment of him shows that his own people have lost touch with their culture. 
So Freddie, you know, walks away from Sonny's window only to peer into Crystal, who is Sonny's fiance, and she's trying on her wedding gown in the room right next to his. And uh, Crystal is played by the very beautiful Jackie Old Coyote. And this was her acting debut. Um, she went on to do uh, two more minor roles, uh, one in the West Studio led Geronimo. And uh, most recently, she can be seen as Barbara Thomas in um, Peacock's Rutherford Falls. But she also did uh, some stunt work as well. And, and uh, I'd love to, you know, by the way, get some stunt people on the show to talk about all of their hard work in films. So if there's any stunt people out there, um, get at me at uh, scodencinema at gmail.com. I'd love to have you on the show and just kind of talk to you about what you do. The next morning, we're introduced to Sonny's mom, played by the always amazing Tantu Cardinal. And she's asking Sonny about a house that he had looked at for the soon-to-be newlyweds. The moment, however, is broken up um, as Sonny's dad comes barreling through, uh, straightening his bolo tie, um, you know, trying to quickly sip his hot coffee. And he's played, of course, by legendary Dennis Banks. Um, you know, listeners to the show, again, we don't really need an introduction to him. But you can tell, you know, right off the bat that Sonny's dad is just like this real stuffed shirt. Um, he's what we call uh, or refer to as a colonized uh, Indian. And he's trying to do his best to sort of separate himself almost completely from the culture and conform to the white man's ways. And even Sonny, you know, in the film refers to him as an ass kisser. But uh, in this scene, uh, his father, Ben, is, is really kind of busting Sonny's balls about all the things that he could be or should be doing uh, instead of going on a picnic with Skitty and the girls. And this conversation is interrupted by the telephone. Hello. Yes, Mr. Mayor. I'm behind that 100%. I could pull the council. Yes, sir, that's very possible. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. Goodbye. So we learned during that little conversation that Sonny's dad works for um, the tribal uh, or, or local government in some capacity. Um, it's not entirely clear. Um, I, we know that he's on uh, the tribal council, but we don't know if he's actually on the uh, local government as well. The only thing that is clear, though, is that he's definitely trying to be in the mayor's back pocket. Uh, it seems that the mayor is needing something, um, some sort of approval by tribal council. And the uh, look of absolute disgust that's on Sonny's face uh, when this conversation is taking place um, really says it all. Uh, you know, so after hanging up the phone, um, you know, dad sort of returns to his coffee and his newspaper and um, he, he doesn't say one word to Sonny, uh, who has a 12-pack of beer under his arm, and he heads out the door. Uh, the only thing that he really does during the scene is, is kind of give uh, Sonny this really disapproving look. So now we get these uh, a few gorgeous landscape shots of the mountains. And again, you know, I live here in uh, uh, on the Muscogee Reservation here in uh, Indian Territory, Oklahoma. 
And I've only been to like Colorado twice, and I've never really ventured further north than uh, Wichita, Kansas. But um, I've never seen mountains of the Montana landscape um, where this film was shot. But it's just breathtaking, um, you know. And, and speaking of breathtaking, um, we, we catch up to uh, Sonny and Crystal on horseback, and they're riding rather uh, uh, riskily. I think that's a word. Um, I mean, basically, if you've seen Deborah Winger uh, riding the mechanical bull in Urban Cowboy, then, then um, that's the mental picture that I'm going to give you. But we see them, and they're like making out all over the woods and the hills, and um, you know, just like uh, dry humping all over the place. And then we cut to them sort of um, riding across the prairie. And they're reading their wedding announcement from the local newspaper. Finally, uh, they pull up to a pond where we once again see a, a shirtless Skitty. And he's climbing off of his girlfriend um, while simultaneously uh, zipping up his pants. Beautiful view, ain't it, Sonny? Sure is. Real pretty. Uh, it's too bad, ain't it, Sonny? What's that? The mountains, the lake, how we used to own it all. What, do you figure we should take it back? Yeah, why not? <laughs> you crazy, man. Hey, I'm three-eighths. Yeah, and five-eighths nuts. Maybe. But still a beautiful view, though. Hey, uh, in 1988, do we actually get a land back reference? So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I mentioned earlier how this film really kind of challenges the uh, Hollywood idea of uh, mixed blood identity. Uh, in that clip, you know, you hear Sonny kind of jokingly refer to Skitty as a crazy mutt. And that's when Skitty uh, responds with, um, hey, I'm three eights. And then Sonny replies, but you're five eights nuts. Uh, you know, the old Hollywood formula for mixed blood um, would call for him to be this really mean and nasty, um, the surly, uh, you know, duplicitous, uh, or just plain stupid. That that's sort of the old Hollywood trope, you know. Um, but Skitty is, is none of those things. Uh, he's bright. He's friendly. Uh, he's compassionate. And most importantly to me, he, he's really freaking funny. Um, you know, he is given several occasions in this movie to, you know, sort of act as the Hollywood half-breed asshole. But he, he never is. And I'm going to give you a perfect example of this um, as we go on. But next up, we see Skitty and his gal pal, um, and then Sonny and Crystal, and they're shuffling into a council meeting uh, where they're quickly sh uh, shushed by the door greeter, uh, reminding them um, of how important uh, this, this, this council meeting is. And I'm sure that's something that everybody can relate to, uh, being shushed either by, by your grandma or your auntie. Um, so I, I know that was something that kind of made me giggle because uh, it's, it's a page right out of my life. That's a beautiful house. The trailer loads of these people are skipping directly to the park. The figures on the tribal bingo tape confirm this as well. Now we've got to change this. Give those Winnebagos another reason for getting off at exit 39. It was at this point I thought how the 
100th anniversary of the conflict at Milk River falls on Labor Day. Since then, we've had our committees and powwows and reached certain decisions. And one is, we feel that we should go a lot farther than we've gone in the past and create one hell of a spectacle that will guarantee a maximum tourist pull while still maintaining the parade, the war dances, and all the other cultural activities. Now, one idea we've come up with after close consultation with all parties is a classic Plains battle reenactment. 100 Blackfeet Braves, the greatest horse warriors of all time, against an equal number of United States Cavalry in full uniform. Nothing said in concrete at this point, so we'd appreciate your opinion. Thank you, Squaw! Thank you, Squaw! What about the women, the children, and the old chiefs who died doing their best against those fatherless soldiers? I laugh at battles that are fought where no one dies. What is to be gained or lost by playing these silly games? I would say it is better to die in battle than to grow old, but no one hears these words anymore. I think it's important to remember that no mention of Milk River is going to be used in the staging of this event. With that in mind, I think it's a good idea. These tourists can spend all their money down the road, or they can spend some of it here. The choice is ours. We don't dishonor anything in helping our people. Nobody's out to open old wounds or rewrite history. All we want to do is put on a good show, help all of our people. There's no sin in prosperity. I'd also like to add that Brawley Industries is offering a full day's pay to any warrior who can provide a mountain of decent costume. I believe this calls for a show of hands. Hey, Sonny, that's a full day's pay. Raise your hand. Yeah, I know that clip ran a little long, but it's important that you get all of that because there's so much information there. Uh, but did you hear the shenanigans of Saginaw Grant? I freaking love that guy. I mean, he is so passionate in that scene. Um, but as I had mentioned earlier, um, you know, this film was actually first marketed as like this pseudo action flick. And to to be an action flick, it, it has to have a crisis. And this, my fellow listeners, is the crisis um, here's the setup. Um, in order to boost the economy of this little podunk town, they want to reenact the massacre at Milk River as part of the Labor Day celebration. The location um, and the description here make it sound very, very similar to the massacre at Sand Creek um, or Washita. And, and most of the natives um, in attendance, or, or actually like in the actual audience, I think, um, would not be thrilled with this idea. But you have old Apple Indian Ben Crow Killer, um, you know, trying his best. I, I probably shouldn't use that term. Uh, yeah, that, that wasn't that wasn't a very good. That wasn't good to me. I shouldn't say that. So we'll just say we have old um, Ben Crow Killer. I apologize. Um, trying his best to convince them that it'll be good for the economy. And then he even um, sweetens the deal by offering a full day pay 
for anyone who sort of like chooses to um, gear up and ride out. And with that, uh, the motion passes. The only person to voice um, dissent is Freddie. And he asks the only obvious question here, um, you know, what, what does that look like for our women and our youth? Uh, you know, he sees nothing, which I think most people wouldn't, uh, he, you know, nothing is entertaining in, in the slaughter of his people, um, you know, no matter what in the name of, of prosperity. But the mayor here is, um, you know, quick to retort to the outburst by proclaiming, you know, well, it's just a show. It doesn't mean anything. Um, you know, we're not trying to rewrite history or open old wounds. And he actually says that, um, you know, but how can anyone in that meeting um, think that this wouldn't open up old wounds? That is a complete mystery to me. But I guess the focus of this scene is squarely placed on the emphasis of this being, you know, uh, a show while ignoring the reality of the people, um, you know, both historically and contemporary, contemporary, just for the sake of, of entertainment. So um, let's just let's just kind of keep going here. Um, the next scene, we're, we're at a bar. And you know what that means, right? That's right. It's a setup for a good old-fashioned barroom fisticuffs. So uh, we see this blonde-haired, steely, blue-eyed man named Calvin, and he's playing pool against a young Native man named Lewis. And then we find ourselves sort of like in mid-conversation about betting $40 that Lewis can't make his final three shots. And of course, like clockwork, uh, Lewis uh, sinks the one ball, uh, moves around quickly, he sinks the five ball, and then he starts lining up on the eight ball. Uh, of course, uh, like clockwork, um, he predictably nails the final shot, you know, confidently walking around the table to pick up the two 20s that Calvin had tossed down. Um, but before he can collect, um, Calvin. Uh, slams the, the the pull cue down on his hand, you know, kind of saying, no dice, you didn't call your final shot, uh, which is bullshit. Um, words are then exchanged, and Calvin tries to wallop Lewis in, like, in the old rib bones with the pull cue, uh, causing Lewis to kind of, like, trap the stick between his arm. And then he uses uh, his momentum to hurl Calvin to the green felt. And it's just a brilliant Aikido move that even, um, you know, our Lord and Savior Steven Seagal would have smiled down at. Um, that is if, if Steven Seagal um, had the muscles in his face to actually smile. But anyway, uh, Lewis um, retrieves like this lock blade knife out of his Levi's vest and then like slices him across the cheek um, like he's like shaving smoked deli turkey. Uh, and, and let me say uh, that the white folks in this film don't really fare well at all. Um, you know, they're portrayed as these one-dimensional stereotypes um, so familiar um, to movies like this. And um, anyway, so I, I would only have to say like 90% of the white folks in this film um, are depicted as insensitive at best and then just flat-out racist at their worst. Yo, I mean, 40 bucks, man. Didn't call your last shot, didn't you? Bullshit. Oh, you fucker! Son of a bitch! Lewis! No! No! 
Nobody wants more trouble. You got enough of that Good. already, Chief. Hey, what are you going? I don't care which one. Calvin's got a dozen witnesses, Marvin. Looks like Calvin's going to the hospital. Big mistake, my friend. I don't forget. Me neither. You owe me 40 bucks. Ah! Fuck you! The next time I see you, Lewis, I'm going to put a bullet right through your fucking eyeballs, you asshole! Morris is a foreman. You can lose your job over this. I don't give a fuck. He wants. He could charge you. Now, it's a deadly weapon. You drew blood. Assault with deadly mayhem? You do time for something like that. He ain't charging nobody. Son of a bitch crapped his pants in front of his buddies, and everybody knows it. Yeah, son is right. He's going to find his own way to get even. Yeah, so there's the rub. Um, so, so tell me um, that this scuffle isn't going to carry over later in the film. Uh, it's the perfect setup, to be honest with you. So you see this plot point just coming from a mile away. But anyway, uh, the boys get the boot, and uh, then we get the conversation about how this guy, um, Calvin, is going to get revenge. Um, and the scene, though, um, marks the first real appearance of, of Tim Sampson. And my God, man, what a striking figure he is on screen. Um, he has a lot of the same charisma that his dad had, um, but he has this just really like unique swagger to him that um, is sort of um, sets him apart, I think, from, from Will. Uh, but while this conversation is taking place, um, we see Freddie Manwolf again um, drunkenly step out in front of a car, almost getting creamed. And that's what you hear, the kind of the brakes screeching at the end of that clip. But he staggers across the street and he sort of tosses himself down on the curb. And then the gang, um, like, walk up and for, for no reason just berate the poor man verbally. Uh, just once again, you know, um, this time, though, they call him a disgrace. The scene ends with them sort of walking away, laughing, and, and just making really more uh, cruel jokes uh, on their way to the 49. So fade in to um, this tight shot of a drum as the 49 singers are just really kind of getting after it. And, and I guess I should maybe um, explain uh, what a 49 is to uh, the uninitiated. Um, 49 dancing is... is um, more of like a loose, uh, I guess would be the right word to use, <laughs> a low, uh, social dance. Um, but it always takes place um, at the end of the evening um, after a powwow. It's like a bonus dance, uh, if you will. Uh, but the timing of a 49 dance in relation to a powwow is important um, because given, you know, like the strict procedures and um, protocols, that really, um, you know, govern behavior at a powwow. The 49, uh, it offers like um, kind of like a, a space to which people can uh, engage freely in drinking and smoking and snagging and, and what have you. It just, it sort of has more of a party vibe than, than a powwow. And the musical style and the name of the 49 dance um, have been attributed to various sources. Um, early studies identify the uh, war expedition songs of the Kiowa of Oklahoma as the stylistic basis um, of the 49 dance songs. Uh, the war expedition songs, however, uh, were used to recognize war exploits and to honor their heroes, while um, contemporary 49 songs um, kind of serve as uh, vehicles for, for teasing and, and, and just kind of flirtatious commentary. Uh, but many have linked the 49 dance to traveling festivals or carnivals of the American Southwest in the early 1900s, 
Such festivals typically included a 49 dance hall or a 49 camp or just a similar name, 49 event, that was intended to sort of evoke the spirit of the California gold rush of 1849. And according to one origin story, um, a group of Native youths wanted to enter one of these particular sideshows. Um, and it was either billed as Days of 49 or Girls of 49 or, or whatever. But the event was taking place at the Caddo County Fair in Anadarko, Oklahoma. Um, when they were unable to come up with the price of admission, one young man reportedly said, well, let's just have our own 49 and, and that's where the dance acquired its name. Um, but another version um, of the name dates to its use uh, in 1924 when the movie In the Days of 49 was particularly popular in the Anadarko area. And then a separate origin story presents the name um, The 49 Dance as a commemorative reference to a group of 50 warriors who went to battle with only 49 returning, um, conversely, with only uh, you know one returning, forty nine killed. So if you if you actually know um, which one is right, or or if I'm even completely wrong altogether, um, hit me up on Instagram at scoden underscore cinema. Let me know if I'm wrong. You can also email me at scodencinema at gmail I love learning um, about this stuff. So uh, like I said, if I have this story completely wrong, let me know. Thank you. Um, so back to the movie, um, we see Sonny, and he's at the drum, and he's drinking, and just sort of carrying on, and we see Skitty sort of talking to this rando guy about the fight that Lewis got in at the bar. Well, Sonny bails on the drum, and he grabs Skitty, and together they pile um, in his pickup truck, and they drive out to what I can only assume is like a, a museum or, or a cultural center of some sorts. Because it's not like directly explained. But after they sort of scale the roof, they bust a couple of windows and they enter the building. And after they creep around um, all the historical war shirts and, and winter counts and uh, shields and headdresses and, and regalia, but not before they have to stop and like sexually accost these native mannequins, um, they find themselves in a room where the dead crow chief uh, from the opening movie is. Uh, where it's basically where his possessions are housed. Let, let me rephrase that. Uh, and there's like this framed photo of him and he's holding the tomahawk that was taken by the soldier along with the actual tomahawk um, that once belonged to him. And it's during this clip, too, that you recognize um, fully that the Croce from the beginning of the film is also uh, Dennis Banks. Got the eyes of a warrior, don't you, Skitty? Yeah, real wolf-like, natural hunter. Yeah, my grandfather said he never had any luck. Wrong place at the wrong time. I'm getting nervous about this. Know what I mean? Hey, that's okay. Fear's natural. I throw up before a fight. Well, you're only gonna borrow it. Belongs to your family anyway. Yeah, you got a point. I'm only borrowing it. Well, the museum didn't steal it. Be hanging on your living room wall. Your direct blood, Sonny. If he could look down and see this, he'd be laughing his ass off. I'm an old man napping in that teepee in the sky. Right. We learn here that the chief from the opening of the film is Sonny's great-great-grandfather. 
And then um, sidebar <laughs> really quick. Uh, I promise I'll get back to the movie. Um, what would you think if your ancestors' skeletons were kept locked in uh, private or museum closets? Um, how would you feel if your ceremonial objects, you know, so central to the practice of your religion, were, were charted and logged or auctioned off or, or mounted on walls or even placed behind glass, forever depriving you of the rituals and traditions associated with them? Or how would you feel um, or how would you like it if other people, you know, took those artifacts and created their own romanticized version of and used it to define, you know, who you are. This uh, is a dilemma that, that we as natives face uh, every single day. You know, indigenous tribes um, all over the world continue to fight auction houses, private collectors, and museums who either house or promote the sale of sacred belongings that are crucial to our heritage, customs, and traditions. And there are a few tribes who now... Um, uh, are uh, alerted to the potential national and international auctions that could foster disappearances of um, their cultural uh, patrimonies. But uh, thankfully, you know, they're, they're able to step in and stop this type of exploitation. But not all tribes, you know, have access to this. And every year, um, traders and collectors continue uh, to perpetrate uh, or perpetuate uh, these transactions. So any collectors out there, um, you know, I, I feel that you need to be held to a reasonable standard. And if you have a, any reason to suspect that an item is culturally or historically important, um, then at least investigate it. And if it's determined that, that um, you know, that indigenous object has some sort of uh, affiliation Please return it to the nation. Um, please, please do the right thing. So, uh, okay, so back to the movie. Um, Skitty is talking Sonny into taking the tire iron and smashing the glass and swiping the tomahawk. And as they turn to leave, they come across uh, another glass case, this time containing the pistols of a Major Nathan Bagby. Um, it's actually the cavalry officer from the beginning of the film. And the placard um, on the case says that the guns were used in the Battle of the Milk River Conflict. And it says that the guns were presented to the United States president, um, this fictitious William H. Wheeler. Uh, and the Stajatis uh, are betting um, that these guns were used to uh, you know, kill dozens of natives in this little skirmish. So with absolute disgust, um, Skitty gives a convincing, you know, F you to the major uh, before smashing the case and taking those guns as well. And just the very fact that Skitty, you know, steals these pistols, um, you know, is a very is very much a way of him, you know, ex exacting uh, or extracting his, his own sort of mixed blood um, retribution. So the next day, um, we see all the Winnebago's and the tribal trailers, and they're pulling into the rodeo grounds for Bonanza Days. And Sonny is at his house, and he's getting ready, and he's getting all warriored up. And his mom, you know, Tantu Cardinal, is, is kind of tying his choker, and that's when his dad walks in. What do you think of your son? Circus in town? Asshole. Your father is head of the tribal council. You should be proud of him. 
How many Indians have addressed Congress? How many called Robert Kennedy Bobby? Yeah, he still kisses the mayor of Binger's ass. I'll see you there. Through this conversation, we, you know, we get the feeling that Sonny's dad was once this proud supporter of Native rights. Um, I mean, he spoke in front of Congress and was even on first-name basis with uh, Bobby Kennedy. Um, but something, you know, sort of changed along the way, and we're not really sure what that is. Um, it seems that, you know, maybe he sort of lost sight of what he was fighting for. You know, this happens a lot when dealing with, um, you know, Native politics. Um, I mean, it's just this whole convoluted mess, you know, trust me. I mean, you get people elected only to kind of sort of have them turn around and appoint family or friends um, to, to the council. And I don't really want to get into it here because the repercussions of sort of criticizing that is real, uh, let me tell you. And I, I can tell you from, from, from uh, experience that, that word travels fast in these parts and retribution um, for speaking out still exists uh, on the res. As Sonny is uh, uh, warrioring up, um, Skitty is, is doing the same thing. Um, he, uh, Skitty bounds out of the house um, looking like a cross between uh, a warrior and a baseball fury. But he leaps into the El Camino and pulls the pistols that he had pinched from the cultural center. And he kind of you know, playfully swings them around um, before shoving them inside like this beaded satchel. And then he just like tears ass out of there. It's kind of funny because he, I mean, not really funny because he almost takes out a dog. Um, it's just, it's crazy that little shot that, he's, that they, they show in the film. But the little town is buzzing, you know, with um, all the sort of normal hustle and bustle of uh, putting together, you know, one of these uh, historical reenactments. And you've got people, you know, kind of milling about in full half uh, or just barely trying regalia. Uh, and then you have like the whites kind of dressed to the nines in cavalry wear, you know, trotting around on horses and keeping campfires going and eating out of Dutch ovens and things like that. And then Skitty sort of pulls up next to Calvin's posse, who's sort of trotting down this road, and he just starts talking shit immediately. Hey, Linquist, better watch your ass. You better not look in a mirror today, Skitty. Somebody smeared shit all over your face. You're gonna be one bald sweet in a couple hours. And spit on this shit, man. <laughs> so not only does he threaten him, you know, like a good scalping, he also pokes a little fun at his Swedish heritage. And I, I was certainly was not expecting that, but... Uh, the lines of Bonanza Days uh, are, are pretty, you know, they're, they're clearly drawn um, with, with like the native teepee camps set up on one side. And then you have your usual, you know, county fair rides, vendors and gamers, you know, set on the other. Um, and, and sort of given, you know, the recent tragedy uh, on the set of Rust, there's this really unnerving scene where the cavalry soldiers are all lined up presenting their firearms to the man um, sitting uh, to a man sitting in the back of like this pickup truck who hands them like blank ammunition. And I've never been to any kind of reenactment. So so color me, you know, ignorant on the subject. But but please, for the love of everything holy, tell me this is not how it, it's actually done, because this whole thing just seems completely insane to me. The, the soldiers walk up and they, they present their, their firearm and he's like, you know, like 30 out six or like, you know, hands him like blank ammunition out of just out of like this this box in his truck. It's crazy. 
But anyway, uh, on the native side, we see Sonny and Skitty and Lewis and Tim Sampson, you know, and they're all sitting on the hood of a war pony uh, drinking and, and they're smoking pot out of one of those classic, you know, beaded feathered roach clips. And they're sort of ribbing each other and they're goofing around and, you know, just really enjoying the day. And then a man who I assume is the Bonanza Day script coordinator uh, approaches them and informs them that, hey, you all need to figure out who's doing what. And and, and basically he tells, you know, he says, we need four names for people who are going to die in battle. And Sonny, like, quickly, like, whips off his glasses, and he quickly retorts, uh, well, how many are going to die on their side? Uh, 30. The, the answer is 30 is going to, you know, going to die on their side. That, that was sort of what was agreed upon. And then Sonny um, takes charge, and he tells Skitty Lewis uh, and Denny that he's going to, you know, ride or, they're gonna, all going to ride around for five minutes and then just fall down. Sonny. Sonny, I need four names before you guys got to die. Yeah, how many guys die on that side, Howard? 35. They lose 30. That's what we agreed, huh? Okay. Bubba, they got the guns. <laughs> Louis, Dennis, Skitty. You guys ride around for about five minutes and fall off. What? Sonny. I don't want to die. Please. Skitty, how's it going to look like if I play favorites? They voted me section leader. What about the other guys? What are they going to say? Sonny, what about what we talked about last night? You and me riding in battle together. I wasn't joking when I said that. Okay. Someone else has got to die. I don't give a shit, Sonny. I'll die. Well, all right. Yeah. I don't give a shit. I'll die. Put us on, man. <laughs> oh, Tim Sampson, you are the living end. He has, like, the funniest, um, like, true-to-life stone-slash-buzzed-up face uh, during this entire scene. And not just to mention, he has this just charming-as-hell grin on his face. He's just flawless. So um, it's agreed that Lewis, Dennis, and Warren um, are all going to take the dive. So um, after we see the governor, you know, get his photo op with the tribal council, <laughs> we follow a young native woman in full regalia uh, walking through the Calvary side of the fair and a stumbling drunken Calvin and all of his buddies uh, began whistling and harassing her. And they continue by just really calling her derogatory names, and, and they're going to just refer to her as just, I'm not even going to say it because it's just disgusting, um, but something um, that, you know, I'm absolutely sure that Native women continually put up with, you know, even today. And if you want to hear my stance on the subject, uh, once again, go listen to the Black Cloud episode where I talk, uh, you know, all about the heinous S word and just the ugly history uh, and statistics of violence against Native women. So um, after that verbal assault of the young woman, um, Calvin's two buddies kind of start terrorizing him, you know, about his fight with Lewis. And they're, you know, they're giving him shit and they're calling him Scarface. And, you know, like, what are you going to do about it? You're going to, you know, get some revenge today and da 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 da. And, you know, after contemplating their words, um, Calvin, you know, is real butthurt at this point and he goes over to his truck and he thinks it's a great idea to replace the blank ammunition with um, live rounds. And as he's doing this, the mayor addresses the anxious crowd, telling them, you know, that it's about to, 
know, that the festivities are about to start in five minutes. So everyone, um, you know, gets whooped up, you know, from the natives and the crowd and the, and the cavalry, and they're all sort of like gearing up to, you know, ride into this fake war. But before the signal starts, the sheriff informs the mayor of the burgled uh, tomahawk and pistols from the history museum from the night before. And the mayor uh, tells him, you know, that, hey, we, we need to treat this like a bank robbery. You know, we don't we don't want that stuff getting out of town is actually what he says. So like the tomahawk, uh, the headdress and all the other, you know, Blackfeet artifacts, you know, that are housed in the museum is viewed as nothing but like a, a commodity to to the mayor. Um, it just, you know, it's just like this bloody history that he's about to use to advertise the town. It's just all commodity. But the cavalry mounts up, um, they grab old glory and they sort of form like this little skirmish line right in front of the Ferris wheel. And the mostly shirtless natives come bounding over the hill, um, next to this little, you know, res kid, uh, eating a cherry snow cone, you know, breaths are baited as the signal cannon fires, um, signaling that the battle is on. So uh, everything just sort of like, there's like this big dust up. And, and the most striking aspect of this entire battle scene is Rodham's direction here. It begins with like this long shot um, from behind the Indian camp. And it looks very much like battle scenes that you've seen in countless other movies. You know, like uh, the cavalry sort of riding, you know, hell-bent for leather from one side while the screaming, whooping Indians, you know, rush in from the other. But what really makes this scene so unusual and almost eerie, actually, um, are the, you know, jaunty-looking, janky carnival rides that sort of rise into the sky behind the onrushing cavalry. And it keenly, you know, places this battle out of time and place and making the whole thing seem, you know, more like this nightmare-fueled funhouse, horror house, so to speak. But um, right away, the bugler cries revelry, and the war cries are cried, and both parties ride headfirst into battle. And they're charging full speed ahead when suddenly, like, the natives stop, and then they turn, and they circle backwards towards the camp. And then the cavalry, you know, quickly begins kind of ribbing them, you know, shouting like, ah, oh, you cowards, and, and things like that. But the natives, they sort of disappear over the hill, when at that exact moment, two more riding parties enter the fray from the tops of the valleys. And then the center party also comes back, meeting them at the bottom. And it's just this brilliant maneuver that immediately intimidates the outnumbered cavalry soldiers. So chaos ensues, and the battle, you know, rages forth. And as the fight ensues, the camera moves in closer and closer, you know, effectively pulling the audience just right in the middle of all this violence. And it's going to get a lot more violent, trust me. But what I also love about this scene is through all the melee, you know, we get to see what an accomplished horse rider Tim Sampson was. You know, all of those years that he spent with his dad as a stuntman, learning how to ride, it just pays off, um, you know, like a jackpot here. He's just so comfortable on on that horse. Um, He makes it look graceful. It's just an absolute joy to watch him. And as we're, you know, kind of going through the motions of the battle, we see Calvin drunkenly, you know, scanning the crowd looking for Lewis. 
And when he spots him from across the battlefield, he raises his pistol and shoots him, you know, through the forehead, killing him instantly. Sonny um, sees what happens, and he kind of races over uh, to his fallen friend. And upon seeing the bloody body, Skitty realizes that someone killed him. And then he starts, like, hacking at the cavalry soldiers for real with, like, this war club. And then this all-out, like, actual fight amongst the men kind of ensues. And he's like all this, you know, crazy chaotic or chaotic, you know, uh, like, you know, Sonny screaming, you know, like, kill him, you know. And, and then he starts taking off after Calvin. And then after unloading his pistol, um, you know, firing several shots into the pop, popcorn machine, uh, Sonny catches up and, and literally real life like um, splits Calvin's skull with his tomahawk. It's just this really brutal slow motion shot, and you actually can see the cranium crack. You you feel the force. You hear it. Uh, it's just brutal. But he falls off his horse, and then his feet get tangled up in the stirrups, and then he's like dragged across the battlefield. And City uh, Skitty sees that, and he's like, "Oh shit, Sonny! Like, what did you do? You killed Galvin." And Sonny's like, "You know, I had to. He, he killed Lewis. You know." Um, and then sort of knowing that, like, uh-oh, like, they're in deep shit, the, the four native men, you know, take off through the battlefield and, and head towards the hills. And the cavalry soldiers, um, you know, quickly realize what's going on, and they're shouting, you know, they killed Calvin, let's get him. Um, so then, like, the natives, like, start firing off, like, real arrows, and they're, like, sticking in the men, and they're wounding them. And it's just this, like, super frantic scene that, that's really played out here. And then Sonny's dad and the mayor and everybody, they sort of realize, like, oh, my God, like, they realize what's going on. And they start shouting, like, stop, 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 stop. And then, like, police radios are buzzing. And then now it's, like, this old-fashioned police chase. It's, like, wheels versus horses. And, like, this brilliant fusion of, like, an old and a new Western as police cars chase the boys who are, once again, just flawlessly riding their studs down Main Street, USA, dressed in full regalia. And again, I keep saying this, but just to witness Samson on a horse here is just is is the true gift of this scene. And he's like a pretty big dude too. I mean, he's no you know Jeff Tate, you know Queensrÿche uh, era Operation Mindcrime here. He's more like uh, uh, Steve Grimmett from Grim Reaper, See You in Hell era. Uh, yeah, look look that up. <laughs> but while all that's happening, uh, the local town folks are, are just seething with rage. And the, the sheriff is briefing the mayor and Sonny's dad on just exactly what's going on here. God damn, what a mess. I got a cruiser destroyed and Deputy Moore's pretty badly shook up. And just now, a bunch of mounted Indians tore through the center of town. And it looks like they're headed toward the reservation. I don't suppose you want to decide who's going to be in charge of that little rat. That's clear Indian jurisdiction. I'll find George Duckworth. I don't want to cause a dispute, Ben, but it happened here on incorporated city property. You're not causing a dispute. One of those boys is mine, and he's not getting killed. So at the very end of that clip, you have the uh, one of the deputies comes over uh, to the sheriff, and he hands him the gun that was used, that, that Calvin had used, and they realize that he had loaded it with live rounds instead of blanks. So both uh, law enforcement officers um, sort of have this moment of clarity where they realize that he, uh, Calvin, is actually the one who started the whole ruckus to begin with. So they kind of look at each other and they kind of like tell, you know, we're basically saying, hey, let's keep this hush hush 
and they take the gun uh, along with all the shell casings and decide to hide them. And at that scene, that brings us to the very end of Act 1, so I think it's a pretty good spot to stop this particular episode. Uh, Yeah, we're going to catch back up with what happens to the boys uh, here in a couple of weeks. Uh, So this this episode went a little bit longer than I had anticipated. I was trying to keep them anywhere between an hour and 15 minutes to an hour 30. We're pushing an hour 45 right now. So, um, yeah, this is just a good spot to stop. So, Mado for listening, and uh, catch us back here uh, in a couple of weeks where we uh, talk about the conclusion of War Party 1988. Take a die in